welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah, man, this is uh, this is great. Um, I got a lot of questions for you. Um, sitting down with an Intel guy, um, your background in foreign languages and financial crime and cybersecurity and and the FBI and all that. And I think uh, you know, plus your books. I mean, we're gonna talk black ops versus what really black ops are. And I think that's gonna be a huge topic because you know what Hollywood and what the world around us and what you know fiction books tell us black ops is is much different than what it really is and i think that's what lent a lot of realism to your books and we're going to get into all that today but um just thank you so much for doing this it's gonna be awesome i appreciate you uh, having me thank you we'll yeah. try to do, try to answer as many questions as i can nice all right so let's just let's kick it right off let's talk about your background um former intel at three letter agencies um working in supply chain um and i want to talk about some specific things that you said uh when you filled out the email form and cover platforms and cover messaging these are terms i've never really heard before so um, let's talk about your background how did you get started in uh, government service working in intel so i think it was kind of a a, a backdoor um in that you know it was in the late to, to mid nineties for part of it. And then the early parts right after nine 11. So I think it was very non-traditional in how the government and military was reaching out to public sector. And there were just some opportunities with some of the, you know, old graybeards that had gotten their fingers in and were looking for some other bodies and in some cases, just looking for some real creative type of solutions. So I definitely had more of a lackluster background. I had tried to, uh, I, I tried to do it actually more of the formal way by doing the ROTC thing, then looking to get commissioned into the army and then hoping to go traditionally into uh, the Intel space. And I think ironically, the, the kind of, screwed up way that I ended up in there probably got me further than I would have ever expected and working with different teams and, uh, and things of that nature. So that I, I suspect that I was able to achieve much more than I would have ever been able to accomplish had I gone, you know, a traditional path. And, uh, and even then I think sometimes I've been kind of a difficult individual. So I don't know that I would have had the success and the opportunities to get into some of those spots either, uh, had it not been for just some, situations where someone's like, Hey, who can do this? And I, you know, kind of look around the room and if nobody's raising their hand, I figure I can figure it out. So I just kind of raise my hand and, um, and usually figure out, well, I know everybody else at least better than in the back. Uh, at least I know more than the people in the room because nobody raised their hand. Um, and so that got me into, you know, the next stage and the next stage. Now, in some cases, I think I realized, okay, what I was thinking might be a good opportunity for me, um, you know, really was kind of a bad situation because here I am volunteering for something that was actually putting people's lives potentially at stake, et cetera. So I had to really quickly ramp up. And, um, and I think because of that, I think I ended up probably doing a better job than I would have normally. Okay. So what three letter agencies did you work for that you can tell me? Um, I can tell you this, that, um, anytime I have to write something, I have to submit to the CIA and NSA, um, and I have to uh, write to the DOD. Um, but that's that's about as, as much as I can share from that standpoint as to who I would have ever worked for or not. Fair enough. 
far enough, and I know um, I've talked to multiple. I didn't have to submit my nonfiction book to the DOD, um, but I've known and I've talked to many authors that have had to. And uh, I think maybe the most famous part uh, of this process that I've seen was when I think Jack Carr wrote Savage Son, and he, he went off on an Instagram post and was pretty upset because they came back in and just you know marked through a bunch of stuff in his book that he was just really furious about because he's like you can google this you can That's find right. this out like why are you redacting this and it just seemed like they realized oh he's kind of a big deal now let's redact some stuff and just kind of put our little imprint on it to, to get our little five minutes of fame off of him but it, uh redactions seem to be maybe a little too much I don't know how you feel about it. What's your experience been with the whole, with the whole redaction process? Yeah. So I, you know, I think that in dealing with the agency, actually, I, I thought it was pretty fair initially. So the first couple books that I wrote, you know, the process took a long time, um, but still it, it was a bit of a challenge, but the redactions, you know, I, I again, I was, I, I was still working for, um, in government contracts. So the last thing I wanted to do is ruffle any feathers. Once I was out and I, and I will say, I felt like I had gotten a little bit screwed, um, and, and felt like, okay, now what opportunities do I have? And I'm not looking to expose anything, but I'm looking to make a living. And here I was getting hamstrung by certain things because all of a sudden CIA wanted to revert the requirement to DOD first. And then it would be passed back through for them and then the other. But if you understood what you had originally written down as your agreement, you still had to send your first version to CIA before you'd go to DOD. So I would still try to cover my ass and say, I'm sending this to you just so there's record of it before I'm sending it to DOD. And they're saying, well, no, we have to actually run through your process. And then after I'm waiting for a little bit of time, they're saying, you know, you have to still go through DOD. Well, I'm like, no kidding, but I'm still trying to uphold my obligation here. And so it was kind of like, I, they knew I had been caught in, in that I would be caught in the circuitous loophole. And it was really, I don't think they cared too much about my Sean Havens black op knuckles because they were a bit of a stretch. I was willing to comply. When I got into the task force orange novels, the, the game kind of changed. And, and that's where I found that I had a lot more redactions. And again, public knowledge. Um, I had a challenge the first couple books where they were calling it uh, analytical inferences, because even though I was putting something out fake based on my prior positions, it could be something. Okay. So, you know, yeah. So I, you know, I, I feel for Jack and what he had to deal with. For mine, even after a while, publishers were like, forget it. This is just too long because they could go six months trying to get the book out and they couldn't even, I couldn't adhere to the timelines for publishing. And even then my, um, the second book with Kensington was delayed after they had this huge marketing campaign and, um, DOD and CIA froze the book and said, you know, you can't publish this yet. And so all that money that this publishing house had invested in, marketing and stuff like that just went into the ether because we had to pull the book. So, you know, just a little bit of a challenge there. Um, I had asked to be released. 
um, from the intelligence community still got no goes on that. So it's like, look, I'm not looking to put it on a placard of what I did, who I was with and stuff like that. But it's like, just allow me to put stuff on my resume or whatever, you know, where, where, where does this person disappear to and what type of creds do they maybe have and something. So I know it's a sticky wicket. It's kind of what you sign up for, but there's just certain things when you see that, you know, uh, other best-selling authors in the genre can put up what, whatever because they're just Googling the stuff and, and we're, we're kind of, you know, upheld to a different standard, but yeah, again, you know, to... crying to my soup. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking to someone, um, I can't remember when it was, it was a month or so ago, and they were telling me that they submitted, who was it? I can't remember who it was, but they submitted a book and they had to submit it to two agencies and one agency redacted a line and the other agency was like, oh, that's not a big deal. Like, yeah, what? I, I, and I got that. So, you know, if you're submitting through CIA, they pass it to NSA. And so they didn't have any problems with it. NSA had fewer problems. But then when I pushed it back to DOD on one of the things, um, then all of a sudden they had a problem because that has to go through SOCOM. So, but the thing that they were calling out was something that was NSA related. So, you, you know, I, you don't know if it's games or what. And, that it's absolute finest right <laughs> right right so, so let's it, talk it's about tough. um let's talk about you worked in supply chain disruption which i think is, is interesting because i worked in supply chain management during my career in the air force and with the army and i saw how big army and big air force did things and how army south you know, worked on special missions in south america and it kind of helped i did um some help with reach back with special ops and uh, supply chain is very important to me and I understand the importance of it, but it goes to another level of supply chain disruption. How can you uh, kind of summarize that in like a sentence or two of what it is that you did um, with that? Yeah, sure thing. So while I was waiting to get clearances and, you know, get into certain places, um, you know, I, I worked for commercial entities. Um, in one case, I worked for a mortgage company. So I learned how to do uh, mortgages and how to make bad mortgages work. And, uh, you know, I mean, there was a lot of learning how, you know, people forge stuff, um, how to get things passed certain ways. And so essentially we learned how to commit fraud in this place okay. and, and, and move money and how that could be done. So later on, I went to, I was at another company, uh, a management consulting firm, and for a while I was put into supply chain, as you're asking. And so recognizing where you're going from one product to another product, where those suppliers are, what types of threats or risks there could be that would disrupt or impact those. And in this case, it was, you know, all above board. It was just, you know, moving commodities and stuff like that that we were looking at, but recognizing, okay, maybe price goes up or maybe something happens in this country. And so it disrupts that. So when I ended up more formally involved with things, it was right about the time where there was a heavy IED uh, challenge in Iraq and they were trying to figure out what to do with it. I got tasked with breaking down the social system of the IED network, where people were getting parts, what components there were with it, okay. so that we could identify what exactly is part of it and how we can disrupt certain aspects of it. 
And so in this case, because most of it was makeshift, we were trying to figure out how the various factions, groups, tribes, families, what have you, might have a finger in each piece of those things. And so what we were doing is creating social disruptors where we were um, working with cleavages and fissures in that community to create problems, or we might target an individual so that that broke down the issue. So I think it's still published, or at least the non-classified or unclassified version is uh, through Small Wars. It was the uh, viral targeting of IEDs through social media or something or social solutions, something like that. But basically you take the same type of a concept of a virus, how it spreads in this lytic cycle through your body. And you do the same thing with the social community where you implant this type of a viral um, you know, disruption and it can spread creating, you know, fear, uncertainty, doubt, etc. And um, so it, it was a good model. Um, it worked for a long time. At the very least, it brought in that social cultural dynamic that was uh, really kind of lacking at the time. Uh, and it layered into all of the mechanical components. And then later on, we did the same thing within the um, um, uh, uh, Afghanistan's tribal areas and stuff where munitions were going. And we were trying to break down, you know, where are people getting them? We're like, well, look, these people are able to put this stuff together. However, what was missing was the primer. And a primer still had to come from someplace else before they started making their own. So same type of thing, just identifying what could be disrupted, what is essential, and what has to come from other groups, families, what have you. Right. Then you can go in there and kind of with a directed strategy and even a, even a rumor mill could help feed that and, you know, Toilet paper is going to be, you know, we saw that in the pandemic. All of a sudden, toilet paper was just the hottest commodity on the planet. And it was all because of some kind of supply chain disruption, whether it was a rumor or whatever it may be. We saw the power of that. And I think that's really cool that um, that's a different level of warfare. We tend to think of warfare as bombs and bullets and airplanes and ships. Um, what happens when? the enemy or the good guys can't get what they need to, you know, go into combat. And that's a different level of, of warfare. And uh, that's really interesting. Now, so tell me this, what is a cover platform? So cover platforms. So as much as we were looking at, you know, disrupting things from a counterterrorism, hunting people down, finding them, figuring out what it was that we could, um, exploit to identify them basically it ended up for me being a re-engineering so for cover platforms for the agencies or for tier one entities when they wanted to put someplace somebody in for a long stay short stay operation um, uh, cover for action um, what we would do is we would identify what's logical so in some cases you might have an individual who was um I don't know. They, they sometimes they just put this, these real crappy um, um, covers together for individuals, and it just didn't make sense. Uh, maybe you had a tier one entity that was dealing with electronics, and they'd be bringing them in country. There is absolutely no way that anybody would have brought in that type of new equipment in that region. They would have gotten crappy stuff from India. They would have gotten some stuff from Pakistan, what have you. So what we try to do is just basically get that look and feel for what is germane to that environment. So it's not going to raise an eyebrow. And in some cases at the time in, the, in a particular location, 
where the covers were getting rolled up was based on the tax man because there were all these businesses that were going on, but the tax man was coming down to shake them down. And so you can have all the good papers that you wanted, but if you weren't ready to pay the bribe and didn't know what was potentially there to disrupt you, um, it could, it could create exposure. So my job for a lot of things was getting people in, getting people out, letting them be able to operate for a long time, looking at their, their, the platform by which they were operating, you know, if it was a business or what type of cover so that they had the right look and feel. So it was really like hardening that and testing it. Um, there was, I've, I've shared on a couple, you know, shows because I have to, you know, just kind of be careful. So I, this, this scenario that I sometimes bring up is in this one case, they were looking to bring in, um, use dates to go from, uh, Iraq to Iran. So it's kind of an export and they, and this, this guys that they had of what they were going to do, bringing people in and stuff like that. Uh, they thought it was great. We looked at it a little bit closer, however, to, to harden it and see if we can just kind of red team it a little bit. And we realized that what they were bringing in was not a, not the proper type of an export, you know, or an import from Iran, you know, they would have looked for table dates and this was just like a crappy food production date. So anybody that might've given a little bit of scrutiny to it would have said it's the wrong type of a date. Okay. Um, again, who, who in tier one is going to be worried about something like that? Um, but it took the booger eaters like us to look at it and say, ah, you got the wrong dates guys. Um, but really, really it's huge, big, big piece of, uh, an operation or a big piece of Intel. Maybe the tier one guys don't see it, but you guys do and go whole. I'm going to call it a BS flag right now because it could be a, a huge factor in uh, the export of weapons or illegal substances or whatever it may be. That's right. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, it's a bad equivalent, but it's like if you're bringing in, you know, venison and, and walleye from Chicago into Wisconsin, I mean, so it's like, well, you know, what the hell is this? Yeah. Um, you know, so, yeah, but, but it was, uh, but I, you know, we did, we did a good job on it. Uh, and, um, you know, it, but it does take a little bit of extra time to understand the people. Um, and, and then we did the same thing with social media at the time. I mean, this was in the late or the early two thousands. Um, you didn't have Facebook, you didn't have Instagram, you didn't have all the social media platforms. So we were actually at the time talking about what the future would be of identity management of how these personas were. So at the time, you know, you might have a few bogus emails, but I can't even fathom how I would have done it today if I was still involved, you know, over the last five years and the way things are, are going on. It's you, you have to be operating in true name now. Well, and it seems like every other week we have a new social media platform that's coming online and taking over. I mean, TikTok it is, it is huge, but it's almost old news. Yeah. You know, Facebook's around, been around for 20 something years now. MySpace was around before that. And if you think about, you know, my kids told me about some other platform that they use like two days ago. And I was like, what the heck is that? The whole new way to chat online is like, it seems it comes up all the time. I can't imagine trying to work in that space now and dig through the information to discover Intel and, and do even a small sliver of a job with the way the internet has just exploded with information. It would just be mind boggling to try to do it today. Yeah, absolutely.
So uh, let's talk about uh, your some of your background. Do you have a background in foreign language? How many different languages can you speak or do you have a background in? So and nowadays it's pretty horrible, even just ordering a drink in France or something. Um, but, but back in the day, uh, I graduated from college in 91. And at the time I was uh, fluent in French, uh, had lived abroad. Um, I had pretty good passable, probably a three plus in Arabic, um, probably two plus in Farsi, uh, had Spanish. So it, it helped me quite a bit. Ironically, I think where I ended up using more of it was working North Africa and using the French, which I wouldn't have had really anticipated. Um, I think the other great irony was that about the time that I was getting out of college, um, I had a hard time finding some uh, intelligence opportunities, the traditional route, because they wanted me to have Chinese and Russian. So at the time, you know, they still weren't thinking Arabic was going to be a big deal and, and they weren't thinking of North Africa and France. I mean, it was, it was kind of funny. I was working with 10th group, um, out of uh, Stuttgart at one point in time. And this, uh, this, um, uh, uh, Tuareg in Mali, uh, Hassan Fagana had kind of staged this little revolt and, uh, they, I think they were going after him at the time and he had this little manifesto and nobody really could understand it and stuff, but it was in French. And so I was able to understand that with along with some of the, the other things with it. So, you know, it had a place ended up working out, but just had to figure out where I could fit myself into and, uh, and make that stuff work for me. What's it like when you read something like that, a manifesto? It's a movie. That's a Hollywood term, a manifesto almost. What's it like reading that and realizing what you're reading and then going, I can't share this. I have to share it with certain people because it's very, very sensitive, but this is crazy shit. Like the world, the world knew about this. This would freak them out. Like what's it like in that moment reading through that and going, holy crap. You know, I think it still takes a little bit of a temperament of both enthusiasm and reaction or overreaction. Um, it goes back to the social cultural thing. And I'm not saying that I was an activist in support of so many of these groups. But if you think of it from the lens of them, it makes a whole lot of sense. Warring tribes constantly. Uh, different groups coming in, police states and corruption coming in. So when you've got a manifesto like something like that, you look at it from the standpoint that it's really that local Robin Hood. And under different circumstances, and in many cases, that's when the, the, the three-letter agencies support a guy like that. You know, it's really just deciding what's going to you know help our cause. Do we support this guy or do we support another guy? But if you looked at a guy like him, he was probably righteous for his situation. Okay. And so it just comes back to, do you recognize the righteousness of this individual in his situation or you recognize your duty? In which case, we're, we just happen to be hunting this guy. Um, they eventually did end up killing him, um, but or somebody did. Um, you know, but, but, you know, in different situations, um, maybe a pretty decent ally, pretty good guy type thing. And I think again, situationally, 
I think you can find that with most situations, unless you've got such a rigid ideology that it can't be changed. But in that case, you know, you read it and you're like, I understand this. So it helped us understand the relationships he had. And in the Sahara Sahel, um, the Tuaregs and looking at where perhaps we could have a, more of a presence and leveraging them. But again, didn't really go anywhere, but I think we could have turned it really to our advantage and getting some good intel. And again, they were the supply chain route there for a long time. So we could have used that to disrupt, but sometimes, you know, other folks have a shorter attention span or smaller requirement. And so it's easier to schwack a guy than to think about how we can exploit him for five years, 10 years and partner with him for something to the greater good that might get us a whole lot more people. Working on a podcast often means late nights editing, preparing for guests and constant marketing. I need something reliable, great tasting, and of course, veteran owned to keep me fueled and at my best. And red, white, and badass brew coffee keeps me rolling. It doesn't matter if it's a long night of writing, preparing for the next podcast episode, or just that first hot cup in the morning. These guys have my back. Check them out today at redwhiteandbadassbrew.com and find out why their brews are as bold as the American spirit. So how often does that kind of happen? Um, so a lot of what we see in the media is targets, targets, targets. These groups are bad. This guy is bad. This president of this organization is bad. Here's some known terrorist targets. Um, a lot of, like you just said, sometimes you have to pick and choose whether it's a target or um, maybe a friend, maybe an ally. That's somebody who yeah. you could actually use to uncover 50 different bad guys or, or, or break a lead. How often does that debate kind of go on as opposed to what we normally see? It's just targets, 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 kill, kill, kill. I think it really depends at the level. So I had a lot of friends um, in, uh, in the Marine Corps, uh, 223, and they had a lot of, there was reservists. And so they had a lot of beat cops in the reserves. And those guys knew how to run down sources and they knew how to potentially exploit. Um, but some other units, you know, were looking to do hunt and kill. And, uh, and so I think a lot of their people got rolled up. Um, at the J2 level uh, in in some of the command, well, SOCOM in particular of what I was involved in a couple conversations, uh, there were more um, short-term you know, decisions on some things. I remember being at a, um, at a an, at kind of an analyst meeting. There was a number of joint chiefs. This was about the time that we were thinking of going in Afghanistan. And there was a lot of politicians there, or at least a lot of people that had kind of a political ties into their roles, uh, but they really didn't know much. And so as they were talking about what they were going to do with Afghanistan, nobody had read things like the other side of the mountain. Nobody was thinking in terms of Alexander the Great. Nobody was talking about the history of Afghanistan and how difficult it could be to tame something like that. It was more idealistic of, we got to go. And, and, you know, with the special forces attempt, that was one thing that was a little bit more precision. But when you start talking about, yeah, we're going to bring a whole bunch of people in and deploy, and you didn't have people that really understood it, um, at least at, in the situation that I was in, um, you know, it's frustrating. And, and I think that as, as the, on the analyst side or the Intel side, you know, we're sharing a lot of stuff because we've taken a lot of time to do it. 
but a lot of people at the decision-making level are still going to go kind of on their gut. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. It's like, yeah, I get it. I know what you guys are saying. I'm going to validate you guys, but my gut's telling me no. Like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that your, you know, your gut is much smarter than, you know, 10, 15 other analysts that have looked at it pretty deeply. And we've gone across a number of different areas, but, but, you know, you go for it. I've dug into a little bit of Afghanistan and Iraq and the Middle East and, you know, Osama bin Laden and, and the different groups. And, you know, it, a lot of people think that we just figured out who Osama bin Laden was after 9-11. He was this new guy, this new guy on the world stage, and we were after him. And that wasn't true. We were after him, and we knew about him for quite some time uh, or of him, you know, and it wasn't a wasn't the intelligence community first rodeo of hearing about him and i think what the public and maybe even politicians to a degree tend to think is that this is new what you're telling me right now is brand new information and that it, that's not necessarily true is it yeah it's it's uh it's funny because there's i mean there's a story about uh, a guy uh wayne simmons who had you know gone through the ranks saying that he was all this black ops this and that and he got tied in with a whole bunch of other guys that were doing this thing called the intelligence summit and i remember going to one of those as an analyst and i remember they had some some chic guy who is like a, a you know falconer and the shit that he was whispering into these other guys ears and to these radio hosts and stuff like that all of a sudden you switched it where Osama bin Laden is in Iran as and he's and he's part being partnered up with these falconers. I kid you not, a week later, I was on assignment and we were still looking for bin Laden in some areas. I was the dude because I had some background in Farsi that got assigned to Iran to look for the dude playing with birds. Because some dumbass politician and somebody that he knew and somebody else that he knew had talked about it and they got on some other type of radio show and they're talking about it. So this is where he is. And I wasted six months focusing on the Falcon business in Iran. Now, the good thing that came out of it is I ended up becoming pretty good authority on the IRGC, Quds Force, understanding bonyards and stuff like that. But what a waste because somebody said... I got a guy who's got a guy who's got a guy and nobody vetted it. He's there. We're going to find him playing with birds. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, they're, again, they were smarter than the analysts who'd been working on it and tracking it. We had the same situation when we were looking in Venezuela for certain people. They're like, there's no way that this terrorist is in Venezuela. We had pictures of him. But they, somebody was pretty damn sure that he was still in Iraq. And we have pictures. So we got pulled off the project. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, you know what? I say wow, but I'm not really that surprised. You know, like that doesn't, uh, doesn't surprise me too much. I mean, it seems like it's probably pretty typical Washington politics, government ops of no, I think we should go here. And it's like, nope, pictures, pictures of him here. Like, we've seen him. Yeah. Laid eyes on him. Nah, 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 nah. It just seems to me that happens maybe more often than not. I don't know if you can, if you answer that, if you want to answer that, but I, it just, to me, 
to me it seems like that's more common than uh i can probably imagine it's it's scary i mean you know you you build relationships you know guys after a while and the teams and groups and stuff and you just hope that a lot of where they're sent to deployed to what have you isn't because somebody was saying hey we need to be here because it was more political and i think as we see and i'm not going to get you know political on this but where you see where these politicians have investments and you see where they're able to buy stocks and you're seeing how they're able to disrupt markets and things like that with certain things and then they can make some money off of it you know there's lives on the line and and it's questions. lining the pockets of individuals and it's and it's it's scary it's to the point where i you know i've got i've got a son and if he ever you know said to me that he wanted to go into the military i would pretty much insist that it was the air force or something like that because i wouldn't want him on the ground on the lines with somebody who knew less than say me um informing them and and helping make some of those decisions yeah go be a paper pusher in one of the services or something but yeah don't don't go boots on the ground yeah i can i could understand that i certainly could i couldn't imagine being in your shoes with a son potentially wanting to go do that and um just knowing what i knew and be like whoa Jeez, but let's uh let's shift gears and talk about um, black ops versus black ops, which is a big a big thing because we we hear the term black ops used in fiction, in movies, and video games, and it's become it's become a saying and kind of yeah. represents a different. So I, you know, I think a lot of those those things when let's just say what it's not in in many cases i'm not saying that it doesn't turn into something like that but for the most part when you're talking about the different titles of of which somebody can operate you know, title 10s 20s what have you um most people that have a clearance of a top secret and below being secret uh what have you which is usually general purpose forces um you get some uh tier two elements in that most of that, you know, those are acknowledged operations. So you can have clandestine things where, again, you're you're acknowledging if something happened that you had people there. When you get into that compartmentalized side, and it's a little bit more uh, discreet. Again, you can have individuals that understand what the strategic purpose is of it, but the other people enacting it don't necessarily have to, and you can still go out. But again, you're still operating in uniform. You know, you may be camouflage you might be you know black or plain clothes or something like that that's that's one thing but again if you're png'd from the com the country you're still going to acknowledge that you're military when you get into that aspect of when you're not acknowledged and when it's something that is even waived from oversight of of congress that's when you're getting into the darker territories so it's something that's kind of tucked away they're not even talking about it. You might have, you know, I think, I don't know that the number is accurate, but I mean, there's that thing you'd always see in the hallways. Well, probably a hundred people in this country or less know about this. Um, it, that's the type of thing that you're talking about now. And I, I, I've, I've shared, you know, there's some other types of programs that could get into special access where it's, you know, the, the literal broom closet uh, where, you know, a few guys are talking, hey, we want to do X, Y, or Z. You're thinking that you're talking about something that's black ops. 
but you don't even know if it's something that's really sanctioned or if it's just a way to go around doing you know one thing or it's something to enable uh, and i'd say that's where i tended to find you know when i'm writing books about the black op it was more about that feeling where you just do not know what the core mission is that you're being tasked on or you kind of know what you're supposed to be doing but you don't know the purpose and you know that you're still operating under cover platforms. You know that it, that you're on your own if you're found out and you know that you're not bringing in any, um, you know, documentation saying that you're an American or, you know, who you are. So those are the types of things that we're talking about. That's the stuff where your, uh, your contracts are for an air force base or something that you're never even setting foot into. Um, I had, I had probably, five different CACs, um, uh, access cards, you know, and they were all for certain branches that I was never doing projects for. Oh. And, and on, and if I did see a contract that I might've been tucked under for certain things, I had, it had nothing to do with it. it we just knew that it was, and they usually were talking them under air force type bases because you had a lot of money in those type of things. So you can kind of slip stuff in. So, that's that's what I'm usually writing about is those type of projects that are so slipped in layer under layer under layer that not only is it dangerous, but you don't even know if it's legitimate. And I think that's where you get that major pucker factor. So not taking in anything away from the white hat heroes of uh, a writer putting in a SEAL Team 6 guy or another SAD CIA guy or Delta and you know, this is a guy that's hunting down terrorists and yada yada and schwacking them and whatnot. Um, yeah, okay. You know, maybe you're riding in a, in a jet or something like that, but it's the stuff where you're just living in that shady hotel and it's where you've taken three planes and a bus and a car and a donkey and the money you have is all for foreign, you know, currency and stuff like that. That's a little bit different. And, and I think that's where a lot of authors get it wrong because they, they would have no way to know that. Um, and, and again, not saying that there isn't anything wrong with those other ones that are a little bit more of that gray um, or sanctioned. But for that reader that's really looking to feel a little bit dirty, you know, take that shower after you read it because it's just kind of nasty. That's that's a different world. And uh, it's it's not as white hat and cool as I think a lot of people think it is. And that's where you're operating in the gray because I think a lot of the actions are, you know, if not blatantly illegal in some cases, pretty much borderlining on it. And so I think you have to just kind of live with understanding it's for the good of the cause sure, yeah. by whichever means. Yeah, that, I, mean, that, I think that's the kind of stuff that... Uh... It's not meant to be discussed in conference rooms. It's not mm -mm. meant to have written down on a file. It's not an email. It's not a directive. It's it's something like, hey, we should scope this out. Hey, we should have this discussion. Hey, we should look into this or go see for it ourselves. And that's as far as it should go is, is this conversation right here. I think that's the kind of nitty-gritty stuff that um, is maybe the most important because you're ruling out. You can do things beyond the scope of law and for again for the greater good and um 
to me, it's kind of interesting. I'm sure it's a lot scarier than that. It sounds cool to me, but I'm, I can't imagine being in those discussions and be like, we're going to do what? Yeah, we're going to yeah. do this. We're going to go ride a camel for nine miles and go check on this guy in the middle of this desert somewhere. And nobody told us we could do it. Like, I mean, it sounds That's awesome, true. but... Uh... <laughs> and and, and so... I've I've added in like a lot of conspiracy things, not because I'm a big conspiracy guy, but just when you're thinking of, well, shit, who can really be pulling the strings for something like that? Because you don't even know who the next layers up are on something. Um, you know, it just kind of increases that that angst, um, you know, or the or the suspiciousness. And I think that's probably the one thing that comes out of it. I mean, you talk about guys that are seeing action and getting you know PTSD and stuff. I think that's the one thing, and I'm not equating it to it, but when you get people that are really operating on that black side, living a life of complete deception, the lies and stuff like that, it takes a different toll. Um, yeah. And not to be overly dramatic, but it does take that soul away from you. And I think you have to really take some time to distance yourself to realize that tool of lying and deceit isn't something for that day-to-day -day to bring back. And yet sometimes because that's been ingrained, um, it's, it's hard to get rid of. And so I think sometimes, you know, even in the writings while trying to create a story, some of it can be even a little bit cathartic. I could see where that life has to become your norm because if it's not your norm, that could be the difference between getting busted in life and death. Um, and, and that's a big deal. But then, like you said, that's a different level of like PTSD. Now you got to bring, now you got to come home and like almost shut it off and become a completely different person again, because that can't be the same. They, they, that norm can't be the norm. Um, so how do you live two almost authentic worlds? And, and because you have to, I mean, your home life depends on it, but your job and your survivability also depends on it as well. How do you, how do you really do that? How do you balance those two but the, and make them both? And completely authentic i don't know i don't know um I, I i i said on another show at one point in time there for a while i was coaching soccer uh kids and i and i saw some pictures of me and i've got like the equivalent of like you know 511s and something like that and you know you the the, the velcro hats and stuff like that and you know looking back at it, i'm like what a tool i must have looked like in the suburbs of the Midwest where I was actually living and every other dad just wearing just regular clothes, but it was like, it just was kind of like game face coming on. And, and, you know, you, you, even though you were home, you're still thinking about some other stuff, but yeah, you don't really discuss that. And then you're, you know, if some things are really kind of bothering you, you just kind of just tucked it away and, and went back. Um, so I don't know, and, and I had a, I had a really nice situation where I was coming back, I, I was being flown back um, after you know a couple weeks at a time, you know, be back on the weekends and stuff here in the Chicagoland area, um, you know, for people that are actually just going in day in day out, coming home, coming back. Granted, in the agencies, you know, your spouses know what you're doing, um, and you know you can share it a little bit more. You know, here where it's like no, nobody else was working in Langley or, um, you know, Bragg or in Tampa, it's different. And so there's just other things you just don't share because it's just not part of the normal day-to-day -day conversation of those soccer moms. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of weird, but I, so I think it's kind of a give and take. I think some people, maybe it's a little bit easier because the spouses know exactly what's going on. Maybe you've had even generations working for certain agencies and things like that, or you've got a military family. So it's just like, don't ask, don't tell. And we just kind of know not to do it. But another situation where it's like, you know, you take somebody that's a, a, a square peg in that round hole, that's really not even supposed to be kind of doing that stuff and yet you are. I think that's just a little bit more confusing for everybody. Sure. All right, let's talk about Shadow Masters and Task Force Orange, which are your two most recent releases. Shadow Masters was your first book, but you kind of did a reloaded version. Uh, what kind of spiked the idea to kind of re-release it? Uh, did you spice it up? Did you change some things around? Uh, how did that come about? So I was still working in, in the community at the time. Um, and I had a good friend who was, uh, who had grown up with a very popular thriller author. And that individual used to reach out to us and ask for some help on occasion. And, you know, we were kind of laughing one time because we were thinking, how is it that these guys don't know what they're even talking about, but yet they're making millions and like, we should do this. And so we, we made a bet, a dollar bet. And who could create the first thriller novel, military thriller novel that was going to be authentic because it's going to come from us. So it's going to be so much better. And uh, I happened to be the first guy to write it. Um, and, and, and once I, you know, was doing it, I'm like, holy crap, this is really hard. Um, and so, <laughs> and all of a sudden, all those, those nuances that we thought that were going to be so important didn't stand up to even just writing a clear sentence and telling the story. Um, so, so Shadow Masters was my first one. And, it, and it was, you know, I guess that inside look of that everyday man. Um, even, you know, one of my agency recruiters, you know, his guy's name was Jerry. I've got in my story, the guy's name was Jerry. Um, there's just some, you know, again, fanciful, but maybe 1%, you know, 2 3% might be a little bit true in there. Um, so it was kind of like taking what I did know and then trying to put it into everyday man who is flip-flopping, coming back and forth and how that is. So I think that was pretty authentic to maybe not every scenario, but maybe how I was feeling and and how, and then trying to amp it up into a, a you know, kind of cool guy story. Um, so I wrote that, then wrote the second one. And ironically, the second one that I wrote, I was working with a guy, um, Colonel Tim Heineman, who's known very much for his work in Burma. And so Tim and I had spent just months at a time together. Uh, Dave Grange was working, General Grange. So I was kind of in this situation. So when I was putting this together, I was kind of thinking of like my crew and how to put those guys into a story and a situation of which, you know, I wasn't in Burma, but we were able to kind of research and talk about what this would be like. And so again, kind of authentic from the standpoint that I'm sitting at breakfast and dinner every single night with these guys talking about what this could look like and what this scenario could be. And so that was kind of fun. Um, and then it went on. And then finally, after um, I, I wanted to do a little bit different series, I finally got picked up by a, a publishing house, Kensington, um, had the idea for Task Force Orange. I thought at the time it would be easier for me because I wasn't read on to the program. So anything that I knew or could research was on my own. Um, and so I thought I'd, I'd be kind of a safe place. I, you know, I was wrong. Um, but anyway, that's, that's kind of what happened. Went through that after the second book, it just got a little bit too arduous. 
um, another guy called me up and said, hey, you know, I've read this series. I'd like to kind of republish it. He was trying to get a little small micro press going on. And I thought it was great because I, I knew I wasn't a good writer, um, maybe, maybe still, um, but even worse so then. And so to have the opportunity for somebody else to polish it, do the editing that I never had because I didn't know where to go. I couldn't get it to an editor if I didn't have the agencies blessing it. So, so it was, it was crappy. And so in this case, you know, he cut out some stuff, polished it up, you know, we, we pushed it out there, but again, it's, it's kind of hard because as I mentioned, you know, when you're asking about the black ops, some folks that have that TS or lower, it's a little bit easier, I think, for them to go out in the public and publicize themselves. Let's say, I was a Green Beret. I was a Navy SEAL. This is my book. It's fiction, but it's my book. There aren't too many guys from the intelligence community that can say, I wrote this really cool book and look at me, but uh, I can't tell you where I was working from, but I can tell you who makes me still jump through hoops yeah it's 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 hard so i think in this case too still didn't go off with the good marketing and branding type thing um because you can't really make a splash you, uh, you know we're not we're not there to go on tv and radio shows and stuff like that you still got to keep it a little bit on the dl so you hope it's kind of a grassroots up upswell uh if people like that type of thing so i know you're working on um, some short story series coming soon uh, with Tactical Life magazine. But do you have, uh, we're going to talk about that here in a second, but do you have any other plans for any other, like full full series novels? You know, be, because of all, so I was already writing some, you know, pre, the, the works that I write, it's really pretty dark. Um, and, and in some cases, when you think about the dread that accompanies it in many of those novels, it's almost horror-like or psychological. Um, and so my, my son at the time was asking me if I could write a book that he could actually read. Um, I didn't want him reading the other ones. And so I said, yeah, I'll write you a little like, you know, kidnapping thing, a little bit of horror in there. I knew that if I kept, you know, the agencies out of it and DOD out of it, no, I didn't have to do pre-publication review. So I ended up starting to write a little bit of a horror series that was more like old school Stephen King and, and really enjoyed it. Um, so I've got, I've got one coming out. It's called whispers of a gypsy and, um, it takes us back to the Nazis and Auschwitz and some cell manipulation and stuff like that. Um, fans of like the Avengers might like that. There's, there's some of those types of things in it. Um, but I don't want to give anything away, but you know, it was, it was kind of, again, writing what I knew, writing what I knew to research, having something fun, not getting my hands slapped. And I thought it might be a good test for me to really see, all right, am I a decent writer? Yeah. Can I get this out there? Or, and, and if it sucks, then, you know, hey, maybe it's me. And so if, I, if I'm writing horror, I know I can't be whining and crying and say, well, nobody would take it because, you know, DOD tied up my hands and agencies tied up my hands. You know, it is what it is. So we'll see what it is. So we'll try that. And in the meantime, see how the uh, short stories go. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that with Tactical Life magazine. What are the short stories going to be like? So the the, the main character of mine, um, uh, Drake Wolf, um, you know, again, trying to go something a little bit different. Army SOT A, so a little bit more SIGINT, 
um, a little bit, you know, that smarter over just a shooter um, goes into TFO. And, and that's what that series of the Task Force Orange thing is. And then, you know, we bring it domestic so that it doesn't get me in trouble. Um, but in this case, what we tried to do for the short stories, because it's four different magazines or different uh, magazine issues that we broke down, uh, 1600 words each. So it's kind of like a vignette. And I thought the easiest way to do it is if I take Drake back in time to when he's operating Afghanistan, Iraq, what have you. And just doing those kind of little vignette missions, and um, and, I, and I thought it'd be appropriate because I, you know again as you know it's you might have nine different uh, missions that end up getting you know aborted and not going to happen, and so that one that you go on, well maybe there's a little bit of an adventure to it, um, and so that's what we're doing by creating that adventure um, because of the tactical life uh, readership. Um, you've got enthusiasts to both the weaponry, but then also that tactical life, literally. And so we're hoping it might resonate with them just kind of like it used to in the back in the day where you'd have these short stories in magazines and, uh, you know, it might, might be just an extra thing to just take some time up and do something other than watching TV. Yeah. When are those going to be published, you know? So this issue of Tactical Life should launch on the 15th or 16th of November. So really in the next week or two. Um, and it's, it'll be the Drake Wolf story. So it'll, that's the November, December issue. And then if, if all goes well, the next one would be January, February. But I know, you know, because this isn't an advertising piece, you know, if advertisers you know, need more segments and stuff like that. It could get pushed, but nonetheless, four are written, four are done. It'll get printed at some point in time. And uh, I think it's a pretty fun story. Yeah, it sounds interesting. Will people be able to read it online or just in, in paper? So you can, they can read it online. So they've got digital copies of uh, Tactical Life, and then you can also do newsstand. Okay. All right. Well, JT, it's been great having you. Uh, I know it's getting late. I have to be respectful of your time. But before we go, um, yeah. everybody needs to go pick up Shadow Masters, pick up Task Force Orange, go subscribe to Tactical Life Magazine so you can catch these new stories. But also, where can they go to find out more about you and, and do some of the books and find out more about that in, intelligence kind of lifestyle? So pretty much everything for me is branded as JT Patton Books. So Twitter, JT Patton Books, um, Facebook, JT Patton, probably books over there, Instagram, the same thing. And then the website, jtpattonbooks.com. If somebody's interested in some of the um, more nonfiction articles and things like that that I had written over the time with, with kind of some interesting people, uh, I think that's in there as like publications. So a lot of like military publications and stuff like that, that came out that, that could be of interest. A lot of like unconventional warfare, asymmetrical warfare stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for doing it. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to definitely check out those uh, Tactical Life Magazine stories and see what they're all about. And, and we'll stay in touch for sure. But thanks again for coming on.